Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is episode 27. We have a great guest today. But first, I want to remind you, if you haven't taken my online change-up course, it's now live on my website. If you go to the Courses tab up top, uh, it's a it's a free four-lesson course. It teaches you the hand action, the grip, everything. There's an extensive PDF with uh, step-by-step instructions, teaches you about the spin, about every little detail, and how to ensure you have a good practice plan to develop an excellent change-up. So it's one of my first uh, online courses. I'm really excited about it. So if you get a chance, check it out. So today we have an awesome guest. Jacob Cruz is joining us. And he was actually a guest on my other podcast with uh, my business partner, Lucas Cook, uh, called Twinsies. But if you don't know who Jacob is, he is the inventor of the Line Drive Pro Trainer, which is a very cool baseball device. He is currently the AA hitting coach for the uh, Chicago Cubs affiliate, the Tennessee Smokies. He is uh, coaching in the Arizona Fall League at the moment, and he had an extensive major league career starting back in 96 with the San Francisco Giants. He then played for the Indians, the Rockies, Tigers, and Reds before concluding his major league time and spending time with the Hanwha Eagles and the Samsung Lions and the Lanu Bears in 2009. And he actually played a little bit of indie ball in 2010, kind of helping out a buddy and had a nice little uh, sort of last hurrah uh, with the Sioux City Explorers. So he's been pretty much everywhere, still coaching. He's one of the best uh, baseball minds that I know. So I was excited to have him uh, back on my show. So without further ado, hey, Jacob, how's everything out there in uh, Arizona? Hey, Dan. Uh, Everything's going great. Uh, Busy here, staying busy in the offseason, even after the World Series. Uh, Got the coach in the uh, Arizona Fall League, which is the top prospects of each organization. So we have four organizations uh, with us right now. So explain to me how that works. So you're down there as a representative of the Cubs, but you coach guys like your team is a, you know, a compilation of team guys from everywhere, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's pretty neat how they do it. It kind of shuffles around, changes uh, every year. There's six teams throughout the league. Uh, each team has four different organizations. Uh, for example, we have the Washington uh, Nationals. We have the Astros. We have, obviously, the Cubs. And we're dealing with um, the Oakland Athletics. Their top prospects, uh, we, we kind of combine them, make a team, and, and play some teams, uh, play some games in the offseason. So what's uh, what's your team name called? We are the Solar Sox. We're based out of uh, the Cubs complex, so uh, it's kind of neat. It's kind of it's good for us. It's good for me because it's it's home, you know. So it's a complex that we know, and kids are pretty much wowed by what the Cubs offer with the weight room and and the clubhouse. So it's nice to show it off a little bit. Yeah, I know. Uh, I was I was listening to the uh, the Cubs Way by Tom Verducci. Have you have you listened to that yet? I haven't gotten around to it. I've heard a lot of people talk about it. And so definitely on the list of books that I'm uh, trying to conquer right now. Yeah, I know you and I have talked about about books a a bunch, but uh, they just mentioned how, you know, the Cubs, Wrigley Field especially, just used to be kind of old and dilapidated. And how when I guess the the new management came in, how just important they felt that was to make being a Chicago Cub, you know, a first class experience. So it sounds like they have pretty good uh, facilities down there, too, huh? Without a doubt, they've really spent the money. Um, I think Under Armour has bought uh, the well, bought them the the building. Uh, the training facility is first class. The batting cages, which is what I consider the the most important thing. Uh, there's I think eight, twelve, twelve cages if I'm not mistaken. I mean, and these cages can be pulled back. You can do a full infield mounds for the pitchers to throw. It's it's really is amazing. 
what do they do to keep like the huge desert spiders and scorpions out of the cages? Well, that's always going to be a problem. I know that I know that they were thinking about spray washing and power washing the inside of the cages. We have no doubt um, uh, tarantulas that will go in there. Uh, we've had some snakes that run through there, and and the black widow. So uh, I don't think you're ever going to keep them out. You try to keep them at bay. Is that uh, like they're all Cubs fans? <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, as you as an Arizona State Sun Devil, I mean, do you guys just like grab a tarantula in the seventh inning if you're getting kind of hungry? I mean. <laughs> You know, I, I have a fear of spiders, so I see the webs. I walk the other way. I don't try to mess with them. I think there's people that are professionals that deal with them. But um, I know, for example, uh, Oakland's uh, facility, they used to get rattlesnakes in their cages. And I, I told myself, I don't know what I'd do if I'm throwing soft toss or BP. And, and there goes a rattlesnake right behind me. So yeah. uh, I'm not ready for that just yet. But Oh, I haven't come across it just just yet. Yeah, it's only a life or death situation there having a having front toss. But <laughs> so tell me about some of the players in the AFL. Obviously, it's it's like a younger crowd. It's a really elite um, level of of like who gets invited to the Arizona Fall League. You know, it's um, no doubt it's their top prospects. It's guys that they foresee that might need a little extra work in the off season, um, even on innings or that they're trying to come back from an injury or whatnot. We have Victor Robles, which is the number two prospect in the MLB pipeline. He's exciting to watch. He's 20 years old. He was on the playoff roster for the Washington Nationals uh, once when they played the Cubs. So you get a kid like that, talented in every in every way, um, who maybe just needs to come out and work on a couple of things or whatnot. You know, organization obviously sends us a little bit of information on how they – want us to proceed with them and, and develop them a little bit more further along. So, but it's good. It's great to see different talents from different organizations, different philosophies, you know, the way they go about their work and, and whatnot. So um, it's nice on a stand on a coach's standpoint to look, look at it all and say, okay, they do it a little different there or they do it a little better here. So um, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. So obviously that's like a big thing where, you know, the Padres might coach their hitters this way and then the Cubs another way and then the nationals. So, how do you guys balance all of that? I mean, I'm sure you, no one wants to step on each other's toes and guys are there to get better. So how do you, what kind of balance do you strike? I mean, do you, do you tiptoe around the guys from the other organizations or what do you do? No, I, I think one, in my first meeting with the guys that, you know, I told them, you know, we have our way, the, the way the Cubs teach hitting. Um, if they have anything that they need to work on, let me know. Let um, Mike Hessman know, the other hitting coach, and we will help them along. We try to interact with, with their coordinators, their hitting coordinators, anybody that comes in from the organization. Really try to implement whatever philosophy they may have in their organization and, and, and take them along. There's some general ways of talking to a player about hitting whether it's you know timing it's all going to be the same across the board um so you don't fear walking up to a player and you're trying to genuinely help them um you're definitely not trying to do any mechanical changes uh to their swing if you can avoid it you know if they ask you you give them your opinion but uh, you recognize that each organization has a certain way of, of teaching uh hitting mechanics yeah so we're kind of talking uh before we we went live here you know, we get college guys. So I remember when I was in college, I think the, this is probably the first time I ever heard the term was we were playing William and Mary, which is a, you know, good, uh, good school up in, in Virginia. Actually, no, 
I don't know, somewhere in the East Coast. I think they're in Virginia. <laughs> and uh, we play them every year, but I mean, I'm getting old, I forget. But anyway, they had a really, a couple really good players one year. They had like a second round pick and like a fifth round pick and like an eighth round pick. And I think uh, one of the guys, my team was talking about, oh yeah, like he's he's good. He hits like 400, but he's got a metal bat swing and he's probably not going to hit very well in pro ball. And oddly enough, that ended up kind of proving the case. I think he played a couple years and just didn't do very well in pro baseball. But um, what does that mean? Like, what is the metal bat swing, the college swing versus the pro swing? Well, I think with metal, um, more so you're able to get away uh, with some flaws in the swing, especially getting out around the ball, broadsiding the ball, um, where your barrel just doesn't stay in the zone very long. Um, you're able to get away with that in, in college. Uh, that's so. That's not the case in pro ball. Obviously, you got wood. Um, if you don't hit it on the barrel, it's going to break. Uh, you're not going to make a good living of breaking bats. So um, that's kind of the way I perceive it. That's the way I take it. Um, some players have great careers, uh, hit a lot of home runs in college, yet they don't get drafted. So it's something that the scout sees that says, hey, I don't like this in the swing. It's probably not going to play at the pro level. And so uh, they don't get the opportunity. And so what what would be an example of something that you might see? And I know it's hard to describe over audio, but... Is there anything that you can kind of like jump off with it? Yeah, if I see this, it kind of gives me an indication that maybe the guy can't hit in pro ball. Well, you know, yeah, in pro ball, you know, there's going to be a lot of flaws that I, I firmly believe you're able to get away in high school, uh, in college to a certain degree. Um, one of those being if I pull with my front shoulder, if I'm, the one, if I'm a hitter that likes to pull the bat across and, and kind of initiate from the top down with that front shoulder pulling the bat through, it's a really hard fix to get into the minor leagues uh, and, and be successful. Uh, and the other one would be the length of getting the barrel to the zone. I think you can get away with it in college, high school. But when you get to pro ball, these kids are facing some of the best talent across the world. Uh, kids from Dominican, Venezuela, Mexico, um, uh, Carousel, you know. So these kids are, are there to throw hard. They're throwing 90 plus, you, you know, and that's not necessarily what you're seeing in college every day on an everyday basis. But that is what you'll see at the minor league level. So the length of the swing of getting it to the zone uh, is a big deal. I, I know I've come across a lot of players that uh, will come out of college or come out of high school and they have a guru out there that's telling them, you know, you got to get behind the ball and really get on playing with it. But the fact of the matter is when, when you're facing players or pitchers that are throwing 90 plus, you don't have a whole lot of time. You have four tenths of a second to make a decision. Uh, and so you have to be pretty short with that swing. And I mean, the length on the backside of the, of the swing of getting that barrel there. That's one of the things I think that we're facing right now and a little bit of an epidemic of guys that are getting drafted, really long swings to the ball. Um, and in the, in the business of baseball and pro, you're being evaluated. You don't necessarily have a lot of time to uh, to correct those swings, so uh, you're getting a, you're getting a year or a year and a half, and you're hopefully you're impressing somebody to stick around. But you have to realize that the next year, 50 new kids are coming in, and they're going to take the, the place of 50, 50 kids in the organization. It's just a revolving door. It's a business. So with some of these trends out there, like obviously launch angle is a huge thing, you know, on the internet right now. Do you feel like that's contributing to some of these long swings? I know that when I watch. Some of these guys on Instagram and, you know, you tend to like look at and remember the uh, the extreme examples, you know, and I see guys on like working on the hit tracks machine and it seems very cool, but it also seems like they're just trying to hit bombs and they're taking swings that I would take if I was doing pitchers BP and I was trying to hit bombs. So 
I mean, do you feel like launch angle and all that stuff is that is that playing into long swings? Is it making swings longer? I think it does. I think it's all relative to how the coach perceives it and wants to teach it. It's not all about launch angles. Uh, sometimes you just need to be a good hitter. And I really stress that, especially for the young hitters, uh, focusing on having a good foundation, good lower half, um, being a good hitter. As you evolve, as you get bigger and stronger, your swing will evolve. You hear it all the time. You know, guys at the big league level, they don't come with their A swing. It, it takes years of honing their skill, of, of doing it over, figuring out, um, what works uh, for them. And then that next year making adjustments because they've grown, they've gotten bigger or stronger, whatever the case may be. That's uh, really the case for the guys at the pro level. So for me to say that at the, at the youth level, I'm trying to teach this kid just like the way Bellinger swings, man, I, I really have a hard time with that, you know? So, um, and, and, you know, they get to pro ball. These, some of these kids get to pro ball and they get a year to show it off. And if they don't, uh, they're back home. Well, we've, when we've talked before about some of the mental factors involved in baseball and how, I mean, you said even like double A, you don't really coach mechanics that much. Like there's little things, but what's the, what's the difference in, in mentality and, and, and approach and, and the mental factors that make a, a kid good enough to go from single A to double A or double A to triple A or to the big leagues? Well, I think that's a little bit in their character. You know, you got to be a grinder. You got to be uh, one of those kids that uh, doesn't like to fail or will not accept failure. Without a doubt, this game has a high level of, of failure. Um, so you have to understand it to a certain level, um, not necessarily agree with, with the failure and, and be a worker. Um, you're working against all these kids around you that are, are trying to take your position. Uh, and so you have to have that mentality of, I need to be better. I need to work and get better at this. I really believe that even at the guys at the big league level, they're always making adjustments. They're always getting better. Um, so that never stops. Uh, for me, it's always, it's hard to bet against the kid who may fall short on talent, but has an incredible amount of heart and work ethic. Uh, I, it's hard to bet against those guys because I've run into those guys. I, I saw uh, Bill Mueller or Bill Miller with the third baseman for the Red Sox. You know, he won a batting title. I played with him in AAA. Wasn't necessarily the most talented player that I've come across, but had a tremendous amount of heart. He worked. He hated failing. Um, ultimately got him 12 years in the big leagues, so a World Series uh, and a batting title. So, like I said, I've seen those guys who fall short on talent, but their heart and their work, work ethic. Yeah, so some of these approach things. Um, so say you have a guy who's got a ton of bat speed and you know a lot of power, like a lot of raw ability. What then takes like sort of the physical ability and the physical attributes and makes it into a, a really high level hitter? I mean, is it just approach? I okay, mean, what, what does he start to get better at? Okay, you broke up with our. Can you ask me that again, please. Um, so say you get a really talented hitter and he moves up to double A and now he's under your wing at uh, with the Smokies. What right. does he have to get better at to then pull himself up to the double A level? I mean, what like mental factors approach? Um, I mean, you talked about work ethic and, and being a grinder. Um, but really specifically, what do, what do guys do that when they struggle, when they move up a level? And what do guys do when they finally start to figure it out? You know, that's, that's a great, great question. Um, but at that double A level, these guys are really starting to figure out pitchers tendencies, uh, you know, as, as an approach, they're taking it a little bit beyond 
what they're trying to do at the box and trying to figure out what the pitcher's trying to do, what the organization's trying to do to them. Uh, they're able to recognize game situations. Uh, maybe they weren't able to do that uh, at the lower levels. Um, it speeds up on them. The ability to slow the game down, to slow it in the box uh, is crucial. Um, so at that level, at the AA level, it's the kids that are starting to ask the questions of, uh, how much movement is it? What pitch was that? Um, you know, those little questions that says, okay, to me as a coach, I'm like, okay, this kid's on to something because he's paying attention. It's just not a matter of going up there and swinging and being aggressive. At the AA level, AAA and big league level, it's about taking the information that you're seeing uh, and making decisions of how they're going to pitch you. Yeah, I, I remember talking to one of my teammates um, and he was talking about how like with some of the sinker ball guys or, or guys with cutters, how you almost had to guess where the ball was going to end up because you just genuinely couldn't tell. Did you face any like really amazing sinker ballers or, or, or cutter guys in your career? Yeah, no doubt. Kevin Brown, you know, I remember walking up there. I was a 24-year-old kid, and he's up on the mound. He's this intimidating figure. And in my mind right now, he looks 6'6". You know, I'm, I'm thinking of back at that at bat. And uh, um, he's in Miami. I'm walking up to the plate. I'm looking at it. He's sweating. You know, he's got his, his cut-off sleeves. And, and I could see the, the sweat coming down his arms. And I walk up there, and he throws me the first pitch. And this thing slides off the table. And I said... Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I'm going to be able to hit that. He struck me out. He ended up coming up with the slider in. I swung over it. Uh, I remember walking back and I said, I'm going to have to make some adjustments to try to hit that pitch. So without a doubt, uh, there's some guys out there with some nasty stuff. Uh, some of it's unhittable uh, when it when you catch them on their day, it's their day. And there's nothing that you can do as a hitter. Well, so let's take an example. Zach Britton, say you're in the dugout and your team's facing Zach Britton. What what do you what do you give those guys? <laughs> you know, most of the time when you're at the big league level, you're going to be prepared. You're going to have pitchers tendencies. There's so much information, Dan, out there now that uh, these players aren't going up there guessing. Uh, they're going to have uh, percentages of what's going to be thrown with the man on second. Uh, what percentage is going to get uh, of a fastball he's going to get in the two two count. Uh, so it's really not a matter of um, me giving him something on the fly over years of, of calculating the pitches and, and pitch tendencies that he's going to have in certain situations and uh, going over a video of how they're going to pitch that particular hitter. You know, he's going to have a way that he's going to pitch Rizzo. He's probably going to stick with it if he's had success. Um, he knows that. Rizzo is going to know that. So it's a matter of both of them, who's going to make that adjustment. Um, so it's not a whole lot you're going to tell the player as they're walking up, uh, but definitely they're going to go prepared knowing uh, how they got him out last time, what the pitcher did to him, um, and, and and trying to find a way to be successful. Mm-hmm. And then with some of those, you know, like sinkers and, and cutters especially, is there is there some trick to trying to get the barrel to the ball? Because everyone, you know, with Zach Britton, for example, everyone just swings over everything like you can't lift the ball so what is a hitter you, you know if you have the full scouting report in front of you you know you're striding to the plate what do you do to try to get underneath and, and lift something like that i mean is there some kind of strategy where you you know what i'm getting at like i don't even know how my brain would get my barrel to that to that pitch that's sinking the truth of the matter is if the guy's on and he's throwing his pitch where he wants it the odds of getting the hit or squaring the ball up really hard to do you know so you're looking for mistakes you're not going to let something up 
out over the plate go, uh, even if it's a couple of inches off the, off the plate, because you know that he's got a nasty uh, secondary pitch or a, or a sinker, like, like you were saying. So um, you're definitely looking for the mistakes. He's going to make a mistake, hopefully, throughout the at-bat, uh, and that's what you're trying to capitalize. But the truth is, if the pitcher's on, he's on. Uh, good pitching beats good hitting any day. So um, sometimes you just have to tip your hat. You go up there, you fight against those guys. You, you try to put some good at bats. You try to make a living off those guys, you know, to the best of you can. But um, knowing that uh, it's it's a tough challenge when you're facing the, the, the starter, closer, or anybody with plus stuff. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So how is the game changing now that you're a coach? Obviously, everyone throws way harder than they used to. Do you see any other, any big glaring trends, either from hitters or pitchers? That maybe you know, maybe make you like scratch your head and you're like, man, that's interesting. Like they didn't used to do that back when I was playing. Well, you know, it's uh, trending with the fastball up. You saw the Dodgers expose um, some of these organizations that are swinging straight up, you know, and trying to lift the ball. And so what's happening now, it's really just the trend of baseball, right? You know, 20 years ago, uh, it was uh, fastballs up. And and then hitters started, you know, getting on top of those balls. And now so pitchers went to sinkers and sliders down the way. And so the hitters have made an adjustment to that, you know, over the last 10 years. And they're lifting that ball. What's happening now is that you're seeing pitchers now throwing four seam right at the belt. And with the swings that work up, there's it's neutralizing that so you almost as an offensive coach have to have uh, a couple philosophies you know one you're uh, when you're facing somebody that's that's sinking the ball and and also you have to have a four seam approach and how it almost seems like you know yeah. some organizations are going to throw you a fastball right at the belt and if you're looking to try to uh, get under that pitch and, and try to lift it you're going to miss a lot. And you saw that with um, with the Yankees being exposed. Uh, a lot of swings and misses. If they hit the ball, they're going to hit it out. If they miss, they're going to strike out a lot. So uh, I think it goes hand in hand. Looking around at some of these pitching coaches, they're putting uh, – they're telling the catchers, we want the ball up. We want four seams right at the belt. Uh, that's what we're trying to shoot at right now. Uh, so definitely we're seeing a different trend in, in pitching. And now it's the adjustment of the hitters to, to counter that and, and get back on – you know, using the terminology back on, get on top of the ball or, or figuring out how to shorten that swing to a pitch that's up in the zone. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it was, it, it's been fascinating watching, you know, the playoffs and just watching how everything changes and just how power oriented is it was on, on both sides of the ball. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's, there's so many tools now, which is, which is interesting. You know, I, I, I'm a pretty firm believer that in probably three years, you know, you go to a, a perfect game showcase or a, any reputable company's showcase, you probably get velocity, you probably get spin for every single pitch and, you know, exit velocity. And of course, they already do that. But just like all these different analytics are already trickling down into amateur baseball and the showcase scene and and all this stuff, just more objective me- measurements than ever. Um you know, did they, I guess they didn't do much of that when you were playing, but did you start to figure any of that stuff out, you know, on your own when you were playing? I mean, did you start to tinker with some of these things and maybe you saw the effects even before you had things to measure it? You know, as, as a player, this is, this has just been over the last 10 years, all these numbers and metrics that have come up. Um, no doubt uh, it, there's a place for it. Um, I think really a lot of this track man and, and whatnot, all the information that's out there, good information for the scouts to evaluate it's still 
figuring out how to use that information to develop the players. Um, but for scouting and evaluating, no doubt, there's a, there's some really great information out there. Um, so when I played, it still wasn't in uh, in the cards. It wasn't available. Um, I wish it would have been. You know, uh, I think there's with the slow with the video that's out there and being able to slow down some swings and and figure out some of these movements that these players make um, would have really helped. Definitely, it's come a long ways from ten years ago of teaching hitting and mechanics and even approach yeah so as a, as a coach how are you so you're pretty much climbing the same ladder that you climbed you know 10 years ago and or 20 years ago now in, in the majors how uh how is the challenge different trying to get back to the majors as a coach it's a little bit different but you know um the way I see it is I really enjoy what I'm doing right now. I think you, you have to be great at something somewhere. Uh, I'm trying to establish just myself as, as a coach that uh, does well with players, that develops players. And, you know, we'll let the other stuff happen as uh, time goes by. You know, you can't force yourself to get to the big leagues. Um, if somebody's got to have to help you. And, and um, we all need somebody to, you know, to in our corner to back us up and, and give us the opportunity. So, you know, you just kind of patiently wait. Uh, you're not trying to force it. Um, you're just trying to do your job as best as you can. And hopefully somebody recognizes that. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot more other challenges. I mean, so you have obviously players that you're helping along. You have other coaches that you get along with. You help, you know, create a winning culture. And then you also have the front office. I mean, how, how much do your sort of people skills, and you and I have been throwing book ideas off each other, you know, left and right. And I mean, what are the, some, some of the things you've learned in the last couple of years just as far as handling people? You know, um, you have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to find common ground. When a Theo Epstein walks in or Jason McLeod, you know, some of these guys that are up above you, uh, they're asking you questions on your players. you got to be able to articulate uh, what you're doing with the player or even just talk shop about anything, you know. Um, so that's always very important. And then you're also able to communicate with, with the players. I mean, you got to be able to hit home with these guys. You got to find a common ground with them, whether they're Latin American, wherever they come from, you got to find that common ground that, uh, that allows you to, for them to trust you. Uh, obviously they're entrusting your career, their careers. Uh, so I think it's very important as, as to be able to have those people skills, those, um, the ability to communicate the information up just as much as it is to communicate the information down. So, um, without a doubt, that's a big, a big skill that um, maybe not necessarily um, is the most important, but very, but very important. What would you say is the most important? <laughs> Putting me on the spot. Well, definitely, you got to know baseball. I want to know. Doubt, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you got to know baseball. You got to be able to talk baseball. You know, these guys that that are coming down, uh, they want to make sure that you know the information that you're able to articulate it correctly to the players and to them. You're able to write some reports. Um, you know, it's not just going out there and just talking baseball to these players, man. You got you got to write reports. You got to put it in the computer. You got to know how to use a computer. Um, so, I, I find myself writing a report every day after a game. Um, I take notes on the game. I take notes on the players. Afterwards, we have to put all that information. It takes about forty-five minutes to put all that information into a computer. Um, it gets sent out and then it gets distributed throughout the whole organization. So everybody's up on, you know, what player did what uh, against what pitcher and how they're how they're developing or how they're not developing. So um, definitely, you got to be a little bit uh, not only the people skills but uh, the computer skills as well. Yeah. Are there any? I'm not going to ask about like I'm sure the Cubs have their proprietary systems, but are there any like uh, 
organization, productivity tools? I mean, anything that you like apps that you really love that help you kind of keep organized or they analyze hitters with or just pass notes around. Like well, I, it's no secret that the, the Cubs have a, you know, an org, a, pro, a program called Ivy, you know, whether I'm not sure if it's top secret or not, if it's not, uh, I just spilled the beans on that. But uh, this program allows you to really just to see everybody in baseball, pulling up stats on all of our players, uh, uh, all the metrics, a lot of information out there. Um, and they have it all accumulated on a couple of pages. It's pretty amazing. Uh, you're, you're looking at stuff, um, how I can help this player. He's got an excellent exit below of four degrees, uh, you know, and he's got a, an exit uh, or a launch angle of four degrees and he's got an exit below of 104, you know, so how can we help this player? Uh, it's great information. Um, I think it's coming across a lot of uh, coaches now and organizations that are getting on board having this type of stuff. Um, not everybody's as open, I, I think, as the Cubs are about sharing this information, but uh, when you when you have it, you just kind of figure out how you can use it to to develop the, some of these players. So, give me a story. Well, uh, t- tell me something that's happened recently in the AFL that you know maybe you hadn't seen before, or you're just like, wow. I mean, there's some incredible players down there that are probably doing things that you know other people just flat out can't do. Um, got anything good? No, you know, this kid Robles, I, I, you know, he comes in as a number two, you know, obviously he's got all this pressure on him. Uh, he comes from the playoffs. And um, so I was interested, you know, you always want to see what's the number two guy look like or what's the number, you know, a couple of years ago I had uh, uh, the center fielder for um, Buxton for uh, Minnesota. Yeah. He was number one. He's an organization, you know, he was in the AFL. I got to see Judge. I got to see Bird. Uh, some of those guys with the Yankees, you know, Kepler was with Minnesota. So uh, these were big leaguers in the making. Um, but Buxton comes in and I saw him and I was like, oh, you know, I saw the tools. So I was interested in seeing what Victor Robles brings to the table. And he shows up, you know, he kind of nonchalantly goes about his day, takes a mediocre BPM. And I'm not very impressed, you know what I mean? And so I'm like, Hmm. And he goes to the plate and the first fastball he sees, I think it was 94, 95 middle in, and he laces it for a double down the line and he's running to first. And before I know it, he's at second. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's something special there. He's able to turn it up like that. So no doubt there's a, I say, okay, I see it now. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, you, you don't want to judge these guys, you know, too quick, uh, when they come to play, man, I, I tell you what, uh, he's going to be a star in the making and we have other stars, you know, um, Bodie, one of our, our players, his second baseman, I think he's going to do well at the big level. We have, a. Uh, noisy, our shortstop with Oakland A's, he hits the ball just about as hard as anybody I've come across. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how in two years, you know, even a year, these guys, most of these guys are going to be in the big leagues. So it's a pretty exciting time in their lives. Yeah. So with a lot of them still being pretty young, I mean, how much do you stress the value of routine and professionalism? I'm sure they're still coming into their own as far as figuring out what works for them and what doesn't. But, you know, how long did it take you to, to develop a solid routine back in your playing days? You know, that's a good question. And it takes time. It really does. You know, you're trying to figure out some of those things about those routines are supposed to help us in, in our game, in our game situations, in our game at bat. So I'm trying to do something that's going to help me create a feel per se, you know, um, 
these guys are trying to find that, whether it's even a routine. We were talking about this the other day. Is like, let's, let's teach some of our young players the routine of walking up to the plate. You know, how do you dig in? You know, just this, repeating that same routine, um, exposing them to an environment where there's a lot of noise and then, you know, and speakers and people screaming, um, putting them in those environments so that their routine kind of kicks in and they're under control. They're able to process the situation and, and handle it. Uh, so it's not a first time. So when they go out to play it to these affiliates, uh, they're not wowed by loud crowds or loud noises, you know? So, um, so routine is very important. Uh, it's ever changing, especially as a hitter, you know, you're trying to figure out that year, what, what worked for you, what didn't. Um, and once you lock it in, you feel pretty good about just sticking to your routine. Obviously you're going to fail different ways. Um, in the game, whether I'm out in front or I'm behind or my timing was late and it's hard to chase your tail every game, you know, and you don't want to go back to the cages. Well, I did this yesterday. Let me try to fix that. And it's hard to hit that way. So you're going to drive yourself yeah. crazy. So when you have a solid routine, you just go back to your routine, you trust in your routine, you do what you need to do to get prepared and you go back at it and, and try to compete. So tell me a little bit about your routine then as a, as a pinch hitter. Cause I, you know, pinch hitting is a fascinating terribly hard endeavor i'm sure i mean we we talked about how in uh one of the tidbits in tom tango's book the book he talks about how you take any hitter if you make him into a full-time pinch hitter you can basically take 30 points off of his batting average so if you have a 330 hitter if he's a pinch hitter he's going to hit about 300 um tell me take take me through your 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 routine your kind of daily life as a, as a pinch hitter it changed. You know, I remember being young. Uh, I wasn't playing a whole lot. And I remember Dusty Baker saying, hey, Cruz, you're up. And so I'd, uh, I'd empty my pockets. I'd take off my jacket. I'd spit out the licorice that I had in there. I'd put on my batting gloves and walk up, you know. And um, I didn't know. Nobody told me. You know, I, I didn't know how to prepare. I just knew that he told me to go hit. So I'd go hit. Um, wasn't very successful at it, obviously. Yeah. Um, and as I got older, you know, you, you, you kind of – uh, kind of revamped yourself and, and the way you, you go about hitting. And, and when I became to the Reds, um, I was a full-time pinch hitter. That's what I did for them. They told me off the off starting the season, say, hey, this is what we want you to do. You're going to be our guy coming off the bench late in the, late in the game, whether it's the closer or the setup guy. So I knew that. Um, and so for me, it was probably one of those toughest years I've ever had because I had to stay focused for so long, I'm watching the game. You're kind of feeling how the game's going. In the fifth inning, I'd go in and I'd start stretching out. Sixth inning, I'm riding the bike, uh, drinking a coffee. In the seventh inning, I'm in the cages. I'm already hitting off a machine. I'm loosening out. And in the eighth inning, when I know there's a possibility to pinch hit, I'm right on that border of being in the clubhouse or, or in the cages and on on deck because he can call you at any moment. You're up. And so I'm trying to take the sweat from uh, being down in the cages up to the to the batter's box. And sometimes that's just the way it works. You know, I, Miley or whoever, what manager I had with the Reds, he said, hey, you're up. And there I go. You know, you got your batting gloves, you're ready. You got a little bit of sweat. And I had the most success doing that. You know, I had led the league in 20 with 20 pinch hits. And I think I still have the franchise record for the Reds with, with 20 pinch hits in the season. That's a lot. So did they give you even like a little heads up? So say it's, you know, like this the eighth inning, they're like, hey, if we get to this situation, it's probably going to go to you. I mean, or do they, was it pretty much just like, Hey, surprise. No, no, they, they try to give you a, 
as much of a heads up as as possible. Obviously, the game's always changing. Whether um, all of a sudden that pinch hitter needs to bunt, you know. Um, so you think you're going to go hit, and all of a sudden we score a run, and now we just need a guy to get o- get him over. So you're ready, your mind's ready for this at bat, and all of a sudden, well, nope, we're going to put in a pitcher or somebody else that's going to bunt and put this move this ball over. Mm-hmm. So now you have to back it back down, and then you, you know maybe go into extra innings, and then you're facing you know, a closer or a setup guy late in the game. And, um, man, you, you got to get it going again. So the emotions, that roller coaster, that, that really exists when you're a pinch hitter. Yeah. And I was, I was reading an article recently by, uh, <laughs> he spoke at Sabre Seminar. He called himself Dr. Physics, PhD. Really funny guy. And he wrote an article on uh, Hardball Times the other day, and he was talking about batting practice and how he was just sort of questioning, like, should you do it at, you know, the the hand thrown 60 mile per hour 40 foot kind of batting practice or would it maybe be more advantageous to have like a machine throwing you know 90 in bp um what's your what's your take on all that i mean and when you're under the you said you're you'd hit off the machine when you're under the uh under the or in the cages underneath the, the ballpark getting ready for your pinch hits um where do you kind of fall on bp i mean do you feel like there's maybe in the future better ways to do it or you know is reaction time you know, that game speed velocity, is that the most important thing we're looking for in BP? Or, I mean, what's your long-term, um, obviously you've done it for so many years. What do you got on BP? You know, um, I'll get to that. So I think it's important, no doubt to face velocity, um, for the guys that didn't play a lot like myself while I was in the coming off the bench, it was very important to see velocity. I'd turn up the machine as hard as it can, uh, as hard as it would go, and I'm trying to track. I'm just trying to let my eyes see the velocity because I don't see it all the time. Uh, so uh, for me, it was really important. For the guys that are playing every day, I wouldn't say that's the case. It's a matter of just going up there, trying to find a feel, uh, just feeling comfortable back in the box, uh, some feel-good swings, let it go, get hit some home runs, and then t- turn it back down and get ready for the game. Because they obviously are they're seeing velocity every day, you know, four or five at-bats every day. So I don't think uh, we'll ever see that where you're going to see a machine out there and throwing BP as hard as they can. Um at the big league level, I, I don't see that. Maybe at the minor league level, I, I've seen some organizations that preach that. Um, to some extent, we do a little bit. But at the big league level, these guys have figured it out. They're ready. You're just trying to feel good uh, before they start the game. Mm-hmm. So is there any credence to like getting minor league guys more bats sort of that way? Or or how much would it wear you out if you're, say, say in, in an ordinary round of BP, you maybe get 15 swings, 20 swings. Uh, now you're getting five live at bats before in a game. Uh, is that going to wear you out more of the course of a long season? Does seeing velocity take a lot more out of you? I would say more on the mental side of it. It's mentally challenging. You know, when you're up there and you're facing velocity, you have to lock it in. Your body all has to sync up. Your mind is completely focused on hitting velocity. So no doubt to be able to do that um, and then do it before the game, I think it'd be take a toll uh, mentally to being exhausted. Physically, I think we would be all right. But um, mentally, I think that's where the biggest challenge would come from. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't think about it that way. Um, I mean, are any are you starting to see any ball clubs start to do any of these conventional uh, practices differently? I mean, has batting practice changed? Has infield practice changed? Has anything changed in the last you know five years? Yeah, you know it has. Uh, you know, 
being here with the Astros organization, I got to talk to the, the manager who's uh, in the Astros organization. He says that uh, it's pretty neat, you know, that he uh, gets up really close. They figure out his velocity of him throwing normal BP, and they try to equate that to 90, 90 miles an hour. So they get him close, and they know how many feet he needs to be away, 30-some uh, feet, 40 feet away from home plate. He throws 45 miles an hour. So at that distance and that velocity, the reaction is of equal to 90 90 miles an hour. So uh, that's the way they do it. Um, we haven't, you know, moved that process in with us in, in our uh, with the Cubs or in with the uh, fall league. So I thought it's definitely something to talk about. Kind of maybe do some research on it and see uh, what the pros and cons of something doing something like that are. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's uh, you know, I. Obviously, the reaction time is not the same as as velocity. So do you think having such short reaction time is going to make it tough for them to get comfortable in the box? Because you talked about comfort and how important that is just to kind of get the feel and get your swing. Is it maybe better sometimes to have just like a more relaxed reaction time from the longer, slower BP? Uh, it all depends. You know, for me, the way I would look at it is if we did it something throughout the whole organization, they get used to it. That's all they know. Well, then uh, it makes sense. But to stick players that have been comfortable doing BP with a certain routine and all of a sudden change that up, I, I think that would be a little bit of uh, resistance there on the side of the players, you know. So, um, mm -hmm. And also getting closer like that, you know, a couple of things change. The angle of which the ball's coming in is different, doesn't really match up with with the pitcher and also the force on the ball you see you're closer you may be throwing uh equivalent to 90 miles an hour but the force behind the ball is not the same as it would be uh at 55 feet so um yeah i think it's uh there's there's a couple of differences and, and, and some studies that need to be done before that's really incorporated as a norm in throughout all, all organizations yeah um so i want to talk a little bit about education so as a player and a coach, what uh, what do you do now for kind of continuing education? What do you do to keep yourself current with, you know, all the new trends, all the analytics, all the just like the the gossip almost? I mean, what what is it that you do and or any good books you recommend to parents or players or any resources that you recommend for people to kind of get up to the speed of modern baseball? Yeah, you're always trying to keep up with the trends, you know, where social media is is a platform that covers all kinds of trends, whether they're good ones or bad ones. Um, yeah. It's following certain people, you know, and, and realizing what you like, what you don't like. Um, and also, I'm a big, I like some books. Uh, the Power of Habit, I just read. I, I really like that. I, I thought I could use some of that stuff to help hitters, you know, who are trying to break a bad habit. Um, I'm going to read the, the Obstacles, the way I, I got some great information on that book. Um, um, and so I've just kind of skimmed through that one. But uh, Grit was another book, you know what I mean? So you got all these books out there that, mm -hmm. uh, that can help uh, in um, educating yourself and educating the players and figuring out how to better connect with, with a lot of the players out there. Yeah, I, I downloaded Grit uh, on your recommendation, and I just finished the book Outliers, which have you read Outliers? Oh, absolutely. So I just I just couldn't like grit started and it was like the same thing just talking about how uh, you know there's it's more about your work ethic than being a genius obviously getting where you go and opportunities that you capitalize on so I just had to put it down um, but I picked up a good one I just uh, completed never split the difference uh, by Chris Faust so he was a former FBI hostage negotiator. So that uh -huh. one was pretty interesting, but I'm going to come back to grit. I just have to take a, take a minute off from the, uh, 
you know, you can get it if you work hard for it kind of thing. Because I, really well, I, I really liked Outliers. Sorry, what did I miss? Well, you didn't show a lot of grit by not finishing that book. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. I'm a, I'm a sham. But uh, I really liked Outliers. <laughs> I thought that had a lot of pretty interesting points. And um, the two chapters of grit were good. I just uh, I needed to hear more hostage negotiation stuff. That stuff's fascinating to me how, you know, just you feel like these in these situations, you can't talk people down. But, you know, just through listening and empathetic statements, get so much out of people and he you know he talks about the real world applications of it and how to you know just get your kids to go to bed on time and how to you know negotiate a better deal at work or whatever get a get a contract to to follow through and um just finishing or uh not finishing but heading off disagreements before they really you know get blown out of proportion i thought it was pretty pretty interesting um you read smart baseball right yeah i did i liked it a lot of information coming from that book yeah, that one uh, I think is a pretty good kind of like a, a fundamental for, you know, the, the saber metrics and all the new analytics. And, you know, I, I thought he gave pretty good support about, you know, it was kind of sad thinking about some of the, uh, you know, the Hall of Fame ballots and guys that maybe deserve to get in and maybe didn't. Um, you know, that's it's kind of your, your heart kind of goes out to them. But um, and on the other hand, just him talking about how some of these guys were overrated players and how. A lot of players now are maybe overrated and, and some are underrated depending on which way you're you're analyzing them, which is which is pretty interesting but um i remember someone was talking about i don't know who it was but they were explaining how you know you have to take some of that stuff with a grain of salt because if you know there are some some guys for example i can't remember who they were talking about but maybe maybe that wasn't mentioned in the book where you know there was a guy who was like a 20 game winner in the big leagues back in like the 70s or 80s And that was sort of like his big accomplishment in the game. And then if you saw, you know, you start spouting off about how, oh, wins don't matter. It's like, well, that was like kind of his identity. Like that was a big accomplishment. That was a big deal for him. And now you're saying that like he doesn't matter because his wins, you know, didn't matter. So I thought that was, was that in the book or did I make that up from somewhere else? No, it was in the book. book, And they just look, yeah, they looked at it in different ways. You know, batting average is obviously not as important as it was been made out to be over the last, you know, 100 years. Um, So it's unique. Uh, Definitely a book, uh, a must read book if you're going to understand the analytics, the sabermetrics of it. Uh, So, uh, like I said, it was a lot of information. Some of those times I had to stop. Okay, let me read that again. You know what I mean? Because, you know, just because um, it, it is, there's a lot of numbers coming at you. They see baseball in a completely different way than what I'm used to seeing it. But if I'm trying to keep up with the trends and if I'm trying to keep up as being the best coach I possibly can, I have to know this stuff. So uh, I thought it was a great book. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you use any of those stats more than others when you're kind of evaluating guys? What are the big ones you look at to kind of see how your hitters are, are doing? Um, I look at uh, obviously ground ball rate is really important uh, for us in our organization. Uh, you know, exit velo is always very important. Launch angle is obviously important. Um, swings and misses in the zone. Uh, there's a, a stat that'll let you know that we have that. Um, so it's letting me know how many times a player's missing, uh, you know, a pitch in the zone, which is important. Um, and then how many times he's going out of the zone to put a ball in play. So, it's all relative to that player, uh, maybe what they're struggling with. Take a look at different metrics out there, different um, numbers that are out there, and trying to get the best information to help that particular player. Not 
I'm not looking at the same thing for every player. Uh, like I said, every player is a little bit different and they all have to work on different things. So it doesn't make sense to say, hey, this is the only thing that I look at. Uh, that's not the case. Yeah. So are you starting to see like a launch angle kind of profile differently for like a three, four, five hitter than maybe like a, you know, like a lead off or like an eight, nine hole hitter? A little bit to, to a certain extent, you know, I mean, you got to remember that we're still in development uh, stages of, of getting these players to the big leagues. These guys are going to get bigger, stronger. So um, if you project these players that are going to fill out, that are going to get bigger and stronger, we want them lifting the ball. We want them driving the ball. Maybe we're not getting the results just yet, but um, in a year or two, when they come back, that swing is there. The body grows into it. Now you have something instead of, you know, always going back and trying to revamp the swing and trying to change it. Um, if we can, you know, get the, all, the everybody on board within an organization, find out exactly what we where we see this particular player going, um, how we're going to attack him in developing him. Uh, I think that's what where the Cubs are do do such a great job of of getting a game plan for each and every player, uh, what they expect to see from that player uh, each year and, and how they, they keep up on the progress of, of that player. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Um, so the last thing on my list that I wanted to ask you, so we, we chat a little bit about this because I got a quote from you for an article that I'm, I'm about finished. Uh, and this about, it was about signs. So obviously you deal now with, with much higher level players. You guys are only a couple of steps away from the big leagues, but we talked about signs in the sense that how much do you feel like signs matter in younger levels of baseball? So for example, you know, I, I coach 14 U for this upcoming season and we're not going to use signs that much. I'm trying to get the kids to understand situations and say, look, if we're in this situation, you've got to understand that this is what's probably going to go on. This is what a bunning situation look like. This is what a bunning situation does not look like. This is the kind of situation we'd use for hit and run, which I don't really like hit and runs anyway. But um, what, uh, how valuable are signs at these really high levels of baseball that you played at where guys pretty much know the game, right? Like we can't pretty much everyone smell when a bunt's going to happen or when a hit and run might happen. Um, do you feel like you're still as a coach? How important are signs? That's, that's my, my big question. You know, um, that's a great question. I, I tell you a secret. You know, here in the fall league, we give signs. There's, you know, guys, our manager standing at third, he's giving the signs. Yet we don't have any signs. We're just bluffing. So, I, I, um, just so you know, uh, <laughs> so we let our guys play. But we're we're still, you know, looking at the manager. We're giving him the courtesy of looking in, letting the other manager believe that we could be putting something on. But there is never anything on it. We'll just kind of let the guys play, figure it out. So. To your question, you know, if we're able to do that here um, and let the guys play if, and, and hopefully they have an idea if they want to bunt on their own, they're able to do that. If they recognize that maybe they're not swinging the bat very well um, and they want to do a hit and run on themselves, they're able to tell, hey, if you get on, I'm going to do a hit and run. Whatever the case may be, they're able to do all those things, which happens. You know, we've had a couple of players bunt on their own. And I asked them, why'd you bunt? I just didn't feel very good today at the at the plate. I still wanted to get my hit. Fair enough. I like that. Um, but we're not forcing that. At the lower levels, you know, at the youth level, I don't see it as a as um, something that's required. You know, I, I just kind of let the players play, have fun, enjoy baseball. When you start structuring it, um, it gets boring. You know, yeah. it, it could be a boring game. So let them have fun. And at the big league level, it's kind of changing. You know, you're not seeing the hit and runs anymore. You're really not seeing sacrifice bunts. Um, you saw it in the World Series. You, you, the Dodgers didn't 
sacrifice bunts or the Astros didn't sacrifice bunts when we all assumed that, that there was a good chance that they would. Um, so, I mean, baseball's changing. Um, will the ch- signs ever go away? I don't think so. I mean, uh, the coach has to do something at third. So, you know what yeah. I mean? It's kind of the, the way of baseball. <laughs> right. Right. So he's got to earn his paycheck. So I, I think putting on signs will never go away, but, um, the relevancy of, you know, the hit and runs and the bunts and the squeezes, man, I, I don't, I don't see that. I, I see that kind of diminishing. Um, and the analytics and the metric of the numbers are showing it why it should go away. So they make a great case. Yeah. And so that kind of leaves like the, the main ones that seem to be left are steals and how much, I mean, were you a base steal in your day and, and how much of it was instinctive on you and how often did you get the green light? Um, you know, I played center field. I, uh, the, the most I ever stole was in triple a, uh, and the manager made me run, you know, he, he said, Hey, it's, it's great for your career. Um, I was just, I was kind of reluctant to run. So I stole 19. I got caught, I think twice, uh, that year. So I could run a little bit, but I was really good ratio. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was, but I was really, I wasn't a burner by no means. It was all a matter of getting a good jump out predicting a good pitch to run on, giving myself the best opportunity uh, to steal that base because I knew that it was detrimental. If, if I got thrown out, I just gave away an out while I was on base. So, I mean, that's that's the key of the game is I'm trying to score, not not, not make outs once I'm on base. So um, running and, and being safe was really important to me. So I wanted to make sure I had all these variables on my side before I decided to run. Um, I think we got away from that and guys were just running to run. And then the metrics came in and says, Hey, it's not as valuable as we once thought. Um, it's actually counterproductive if the guy gets thrown out. So, um, the numbers show that. And so, uh, I think guys that can run, let's do it. Um, but these catches, man, some of these guys, guys are throwing home with a pop time of under one nine. That's, that's crazy. You, you gotta be lightning fast to, yeah. to steal a base nowadays. Yeah, that makes sense. And that was one of the, the, the great things that I learned from that book, Smart Baseball, is that if you're not safe upwards of 75% of the time, it actually hurts your team's overall run expectancy, which is crazy. So if you're not three out of every four, you're actually hurting your team. So it's not just about the quantity. Like, And he gave a lot of examples about guys who, yeah, maybe you stole 50 bases in a season. That's a lot. But you're also caught 30 times. So it was a net loss for your team which is crazy right. to think about. All right, well, we're getting close to the end here. What uh, what else you got? Any, any uh, conspiracy theories? Anything interesting going on? Well, I got one. Uh, you know, everybody's talking about this juiced baseball and um, the amount of home runs that were hit at the big league level. And I can 100% tell you, uh, from my opinion, that these balls were different. No doubt the balls were jumping off the bat this year, and it's directly related to the baseball. And how I know this is because I throw minor league baseballs. I throw batting practice every day. And when you get a couple of baseballs that it says a major league logo, for whatever reason, the balls go further. They just do. Um, most of these players that will come down and rehab. Uh, we had a, a Brian Anderson, a left-handed pitcher with the Cubs came down um, and he's using major league baseballs in our minor league uh, games. And these, his kids are hitting some home runs and, and they're, as they're rounding the base, they're shaking their head. Can't believe that the ball got out. You know, you talk to him afterwards and it's like, Hey, why were you shaking your head? And he's like, I didn't hit that ball. Well, I didn't hit that. I didn't square that up to hit it out. And so you realize, like, okay, there's something that's up. So um, I can't uh, 
I can't say why. Obviously, everybody loves to come out and see a home run, and it's um, it draws people. So maybe that's it. I, I don't know, you know. But if there's if you ask me if there's something wrong with the baseballs or if there's something right, whichever you want to look at it, yeah, there's something different with the baseballs this year. <laughs> it's uh, it was also interesting hearing that they were different in the World Series. Uh, did you get your hands on any of those? I haven't, you know, um, and uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> they're hard to get a hold of you know they they really have those locked down um now with all the memorabilia that's going out there a lot of these foul balls that are in play that you know they get thrown into the dugout they're getting logged in uh somebody's collecting those balls uh, they're logging in as much information on that particular ball who threw it um who hit it uh who was catching um what that pitch was when it was hit i mean so when you hmm. buy a baseball from the that. world series yeah it's it's really neat uh, um they're doing their analytics on, on the balls on the memorabilia so you can you're able to log in this number sign in um give this number and it'll tell you as much history about that baseball um how many pitches it was in the game what else. it's it's really fascinating so now you're just not buying a baseball that was in the game you knew that um verlander threw it and uh some hitter hit it and you know, it went foul on the fourth pitch, whatever the case would be, you know it all. So it's, it's crazy. So these balls aren't just being dismissed. They're being held on um, and then, you know, sold out there for people, for fans to buy. That's crazy. I mean, and it was weird just hearing the Twitter comments about the, the World Series balls being slicker and all this other stuff. And it's like you know, some some of the opinions were, oh, these pitchers, when they don't pitch well, it's always the baseball's fault, which, yeah, I mean, it's kind of true. But at the same time, I mean, there is definitely a difference. I mean, when you feel it, you feel it. I mean, like you said, you throw BP every day. So, I mean, you can feel the difference between minor league baseballs, right? Like some guys or some of them have bigger seams. Some are a little lopsided. Like they're not nearly as consistent as you think they would be. And, uh, you know, for a, a guy who pitches, you know, like Verlander throwing 200 plus innings in a year, if he says the ball is different, he probably, he probably means it. He's probably not just bluffing, especially as well as he pitched. Right. I, I'm going to tend to believe that the pitcher is going to know exactly um, the differences in the balls. You know, they're that's what they do. That's their living, you know, to, to know the baseballs, to know the seams. They're going to feel the differences between the thickness of a seam that maybe you and I would not uh, really notice. Um, that's their job. And so whether they're wound a little tighter or whatever the case may be, uh, they have that sense of knowing this is different. The balls are a tick smaller, whatever the case, a tick tighter. Um, we don't. Obviously, we get an idea but uh that's their job to know the baseballs and I, t- I tend to believe them well hey jacob thanks for uh thanks for coming back on the podcast it's always awesome having you we have some some fantastic baseball conversations and you know appreciate you relaying your experience to our listeners so um we'll look to have you back on the show maybe sometime next year but uh uh do you want to give anyone um some ways to follow up with you on social media and with your products yeah, if anybody wants to follow me, I do a lot of videos of um, hitting. I'm available at Line Drive Pro Trainer. It's a training product that I have out on, on social media. It's available at Dick Sporting Goods stores. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Jacob Cruz or Line Drive Pro Trainer. I'm everywhere on social media, so I'm always around putting up videos. I appreciate all comments. And so if there's any video that you guys want to hear or see or any information that you may need, uh, let me know. Yeah, Jake's one of the good guys, so be sure to follow up with them. All right, we'll see you next week on Dear Baseball Gods.